Thanks, guys. You guys can grab a seat. All right, well, welcome. My name is Doug. I'm the pastor, campus pastor here at Parkview East, and it's a joy to be able to be here and spend this time with you this morning. If you're new, just want to welcome you. Um, we're actually in, um, as we start off the school year, I don't know about you guys, but we're in an academic community, and my life kind of revolves around the academic calendar, both here at Faith Academy, but then also um, in our home with kids going off to school and some of the uh, adjustments and chaos that happens as those things take place. Um, as a result, we're in a, kind of a series, this is a perfect time for us as a church to kind of circle back to some of the basics. Some of the basics, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, ultimately to consider what God's call is on our life. And so to do that, last week Pastor Schillinger was here and, and he looked at it specifically, I think, Acts chapter 1, where he talked about the Holy Spirit, and what the Holy Spirit's role is in our life and what the Holy Spirit will do through our life primarily. And so my task for us this morning um, is to consider um, the Great Commission. Uh, the Great Commission, it's a passage that is very, perhaps if you've been around the church for much time, if you're familiar with scripture, perhaps you have some sort of familiarity with this passage. Um, if you've been at Parkview East at all this past year, um, this is the second time I've preached on this exact same passage, okay? And that's okay. It's okay. It's an important passage, and it's okay to return to these things regularly. So if you have your, your uh, copy of God's Word with you, I'd invite you to open to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to be looking in verses 16 through 20. Matthew 28, verse 16 through 20. If you do not have a copy of God's Word of the Bible, there are, there's a stack of Bibles on that table back there. Um, or even if you would raise your hand, I believe Craig Welt is, is in position. He could potentially hand a Bible to you if you just raise your hand maybe, if you need one. If not, pull out a device or get next to somebody who's got one. The words won't be on the screen. And so Matthew chapter 28 verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I pray just now as we open our Bibles, as we look at your word, Father, I pray that you would direct our minds, our hearts to be focused on what you have for us this morning. Um, Lord, I pray you would even just rid this room of distractions such as what just happened behind me. And I pray, Lord, that you would um, just call and challenge your saints this morning. Lord, we ask these scenes in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, so if you're new to Parkview East, this is the way it is. Those rows right there get real cold, just so you know. And that thing's really loud. All right, welcome to Parkview East. We're glad you're here. So... If you guys are like me, summertime is a way for us, a time for our family to kind of get away and to do some things that are a little different. And um, our family didn't do anything super extravagant this summer. Um, towards the end of the summer, we planned a little trip um, to northwest Iowa at a camp. You know exactly where this is going, at a camp where we uh, just spent some time together. And, and a friend of mine heard that we were going, and she also heard that we had never, that I had never, specifically, I'm from Iowa, and that I had never been to the Iowa State Fair. Never, okay? 
35-year-old grown man from Iowa, never been to the Iowa State Fair. Now, there's some of you, perhaps, in the room this morning that as soon as you hear that, like, just instantly discredit everything that I have to say because I had never been there. I just dropped a few ladders, on, uh, rungs on the ladder of respect. And there's probably some of you in the room as well on the other end of the spectrum knowing that I had never been there. Maybe I climbed a few rungs on the ladder of respect. Either way, either way, we had never been. And so we got these tickets and we kind of incorporated it into our trip. And it was an awesome time. If you've never been, you really should go. If you do not know, in the state of Iowa, the state fair is kind of a big deal. And so as we get to the state fair, we really have no idea what to expect, okay? We park the car, we make our way into the fair, and we're just bombarded right away by booth after booth, vendor after vendor, um, option after option. We spend about an hour walking around, looking at the food, looking at the exhibits, seeing different things, and the kids were really enjoying it, but we really had no idea. I couldn't even, I mean, it's like the first map I couldn't navigate because there were so many people, so many different things. I had no idea where I was what I was doing, okay? Luckily, we bumped into some friends from Parkview who were like life, you know, long Iowa State Fair fanatics, all right? And they, when they heard it was our first time at the fair, like their eyes just opened and they saw it as an opportunity, like God had made them for this moment, okay? And they, they gave us the map. They said, oh, let me see the map. Let me see the map. We have the kids. They have their kids. And they're like, okay, this is what you got to go. And they got the pen. They just took the pen out of my hand and just started circling things. You got to go here. You got to see this. You got to do this. Oh, the kids will love this. You'll like this. And they did that. And I'm really thankful for it because it actually made the next couple of hours like worth something so we went the kids loved the animals that we saw we eventually made our way into this building I think it was the ag building and when we got there there was this massive line that just stretched the entire length of the building just a huge line and everybody was just standing nobody was moving anywhere and there was hard-boiled eggs on a popsicle stick now my kids love hard-boiled eggs I love free things, and so it was just the perfect combination. They just circled that booth and gobbled up those eggs for a while, and while they were doing that, I went over to the line, and I said, now, there was a guy who was just clearly bored out of his mind and did not want to be in that line, I just said, what's, what's the line for? What are, what are you guys standing in line for? And he looked at me and he said, the butter cow. And I was like, oh, right, the butter cow. And so I walked away having no idea what the butter cow was quickly Googled the butter cow and, and read quickly on Wikipedia what the, what the butter cow is. If you did not know, we have our own stick of butter in the state of Iowa that's shaped like a cow, okay? And every year it makes an appearance at the state fair, usually with something else, and all these people were standing in line to see this massive stick of butter, okay? And I just kind of, hey, kids, do you want to see? No, we don't want to. Okay, very good, very good. You're learning. You're learning. Move along. Nothing to see here. So needless to say, we didn't see the butter cow, um, and I probably never will. So the point is, here's the deal. You could go to the state fair every year. These people, these friends of ours, they go there every year. They've missed like just a handful of years. You could go there every year, all week long. You could camp at the state fair, go in and out every day, see one thing after the other. And the odds are every time you return to the state fair, you will see something new. You will see something different, regardless of how familiar you are with the Iowa State Fair. It is so big, so changing, ever-evolving, that every time you walk in those gates, you are bound to see and experience something new. What I believe, and the reason why we circle back to this text this year, is because I believe this exact same thing happens with God's Word. That's how powerful this book is 
is. That regardless of what the scripture is, regardless of how many times you circle back and come back around to the scripture, you are bound to see something new. And as a result, I'm going to preach to you on the exact same passage, but it will be a different message than it was last year. Because that's the amazing thing about God's word. Some people think this word is boring, that it's stale, that it's old and out of date, and there could be nothing that is further from the truth. This book is alive, it is active, and every time you return to it, there is something new to see. Now, as we turn our eyes on this passage, like I said before, potentially a familiar passage for some of you, what we are going to ask ourselves, what I want to challenge you to ask yourself both corporately as a church and personally as you as an individual sitting in those chairs is are you, are we doing what Jesus is telling us to do? Are we doing what he is telling us to do? Have we remembered and are we following the marching orders of the church? Again, there is a corporate application as we consider ministries at Parkview East, at Parkview in general, as we consider the activities that we are involved in and we want to evaluate those activities, those ministries. This is the way we evaluate them by answering that question. Are we making disciples? I think of even in this building, we think about the spot, Faith Academy, what we are, this place is designed to do. If it is to be effective, it will say, yes, we are making disciples. These are the last words in the book of Matthew. The final words, he is telling us a story of the life of Jesus Christ. And the last thing he leaves his readers with to be seared into their memory is the task that Christ has called them for. These 11 men gather together. And this is the last thing. This entire message is culminating here on a mountaintop in Galilee. This is what the church is to do. Are we making disciples? As we look at the Great Commission, there's five verses. And typically, what you'll see is people will spend most of their time in the following, in the, in the final three verses. Okay, I can calm down a little bit now. In the final three verses. So if my voice is just, okay. So in the final three verses is where the, most of our meat, most of the meal will come from. This morning, I'm going to kind of turn the table a little bit. And we're going to look primarily at the first two verses, but we'll, we'll look at the whole thing. And what we see when we look at all five of these verses is that in these verses, in this passage, Jesus gives us, God gives us, he, he tells us about the priority of discipleship, and he also tells us about the practice of discipleship. He talks about the importance, the value, why we should make disciples. Then he gives us the grace of showing us and telling us how to make disciples disciples. So the message should be pretty clear. Either way, what this passage really is, is stressing is the need, the importance for us to make disciples. At the heart of this passage is discipleship. And if you're new to the church and maybe you're wondering what is a disciple, a very easy way to sum it up is a disciple is somebody who learns from Jesus to live like 
Jesus. That's essentially what a disciple is. And embedded in the definition of a disciple is somebody who makes other disciples. You will see that this morning in the text. And so the priority of discipleship and the program of discipleship. That's ultimately what we're getting. And today my challenge to you is simply, is after we get done here this morning, it's going to be very simple. Just ask yourself a question. I'll give you some tips on how you can answer this question or help to answer the question the right way. But the, the basic question is, are you making disciples? That's the basic, basic question. That's the big point of the text. It's the big point of the message is that we are to be a people who makes disciples. So verses 16 and 17 give us the setting. They give us the background, the context in which the Great Commission was given. Following the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, the 11 disciples do exactly as Jesus instructed them to do. They are making their way up a Galilean hillside when they meet Jesus himself. And we are told that when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. These two verses are so critical. And I would like to spend just a little extra time with them this morning. So you can get um, an idea, ultimately, of what Jesus is calling not just these 11 men to, but us as well. And to sum up these, three, these two verses, I'm going to give you essentially three words. Just three basic words that, these, that tell us a lot about what these two verses are saying. And it's witness, worship, and weakness. Witness, worship, and weakness. And essentially, when we look at the first two verses, what these first two verses tell us is a lot about who we are, who a disciple is. The next three would tell us what we do. The first two tell us who we are. We're called to be a witness. We're called to worship and we are people who are weak. That's what they teach us. So first up is witness. The location of this interaction where the disciples meet Jesus is of tremendous, tremendous importance. In Matthew 26, 32, before the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus instructed his disciples that he would meet them in Galilee. Now this makes sense. It would be customary for these Galilean men, these men who are all from this part of the world, these Galilean men, it would be customary for them to return home following their pilgrimage to Jerusalem during Passover. So after Passover takes place, they've returned from Jerusalem to their home. It makes complete and total sense for these men to be in Galilee. So I get it. I understand why he said, I'll meet you in Galilee. But there is an important note that Galilee, that we have to pay attention to. Galilee is referred to in Scripture, specifically in Matthew chapter 4, which is making reference all the way back to Isaiah chapter 9, that Galilee is called Galilee of the Gentiles. Or in Isaiah it says, Galilee of the nations. So here, in this specific place, just by calling them, these men, to meet him in Galilee, Jesus is showing them, just by that action, that the mission he's calling them to is a global mission. It is a worldwide assignment. The very act of calling them back to Galilee 
Even that action, Jesus is emphasizing the worldwide mission he's calling them to. He's calling them to be a witness to those who are culturally and ethnically different. They are not simply, he wants to make it clear that the message he has brought, the gospel message is not just for the Jews. It is not just for the people who look like these 11 men. It is not just for the people who speak like these 11 men. What Jesus is calling these men to is a worldwide, a global movement. Now, he does it on a mountain. Throughout the book of Matthew, this is one of many mountaintop moments in the life of Christ. It echoes all the way back in the Torah to when Moses was at Mount Sinai. And it is a reminder, it's echoing back to that. Just like Moses addresses the people of God at Mount Sinai, so Jesus speaks to his disciples here on a mountain in Galilee and gives them this worldwide mission as part of the new covenant. And so Jesus here in this end of the Gospel of Matthew is set before us not just as a new Moses, but as a better Moses, right? Moses was used, God called him and used him to deliver God's people out of bondage, right? For for Centuries, God's people were held in captivity waiting for a Moses to come up within the ranks to lead them, God's people, the nation of Israel, out of bondage, out of slavery, to deliver them. Well, Jesus isn't just called for one ethnic group. He's not just the answer for one group of people. He is the answer for the entire world. Regardless of what color your skin is, regardless of what language you speak or what corner of the earth you call home, he is the answer. Jesus is a better Moses. The next thing that we learn just by looking at these two verses is we learn that we are to be a people who worship. In verse 17, we learn how the disciples responded to the encounter with Christ, with the resurrected Christ. We are told when they saw him, They worshipped him. Matthew is telling us something really, really important. These men, these Orthodox Jewish men who are well-versed with Scripture. If there's anything, if there's one principle these men know is that you shall have no other gods before the one true God. It's the first commandment. If there's anything they understand is that you do not worship anything anyone but God. And so the very act of them falling on their faces, prostrate, ascribing worship to Jesus is telling us that these men believe him to be God. They believe him to be God. Now it's important for us to understand that, especially in our culture, in our academic community. The claims of the Christian faith are often met with a great deal of skepticism, a tremendous amount of skepticism. And although it may be socially or academically acceptable to say Jesus is a great man, to say he's God, now come on, you're going a little too far. It's typically how people respond. Oh, he did great things, absolutely. Oh, he said awesome things. He had a tremendous power, but was he God? Seriously? Well, these men, upon their encounter, worshipped him because they believed him to be God. Now, the interesting note here is that it took 300 
years. It took 300 years for a heretic within the church to rise up and question the deity of Christ. 300 years. If there was one thing following the resurrection that the church knew for absolute certain, it was that Jesus was God. It wasn't questioned. And in fact, the person who did, they did raise up, they made such an example out of him that it took another 1,500 years for a heretic to rise up and question his deity. If there was a, something that they questioned in the early days of the church, it was whether he was fully man. That was questioned. And to me, it's so interesting how the tables have turned, right? When they were there, when they saw and knew this man, they fully believed him to be God. They didn't question it. The church didn't question it. We would do a great deal to learn from those times. Now, I want to pause there as we consider witness and worship. As we consider those two things. What we see when the disciples encounter their resurrected Lord is that for the first time, these men do exactly the same thing that the wise men did in chapter 2 who were looking for the boy Jesus. Right? If you guys are familiar with the Christmas narrative, the Bible tells us that these wise men set out from the east to find Jesus. And when they found him, um, the child was with his mother. And what was their response? These wise men who came from a different part of the world, who looked different than Jews looked at that time, these men came and they fell on their faces. They worshipped him. In that moment, from the moment Jesus touched down on earth, the Bible is giving us glimpse after glimpse after glimpse of what he came to do and who he came to save. Everyone, not just one particular group of people. You see clue and clue, sign and sign after sign after sign in the Bible to show us that Jesus is the answer for all of us, for every one of us. These men fall down and they worship Jesus. And we see at the end when he's resurrected, standing there, the disciples are doing the exact same thing, falling down, worshiping him. From the moment he touched down to the moment he rose, he was showing us he is the answer for every single one of us, every one of us. Now here at the end of his ma- at the book of Matthew... He shows us ultimately how he will fulfill it, how he will bring it to pass. He will have, at the end of time, there will be people from every nation, every tongue, every tribe in heaven worshiping around the throne. And the way he will pull it off is through his church, is through us. The way he accomplishes it is his spirit in us being a witness to the world around us. Now, pause. Okay. Real quick, I think, um, because the goal of missions, the goal of missions, the goal of discipleship is the worship of the nations, okay? Worship, to be clear, is the goal, right? When time has, is no longer afforded for us on this earth, when, when, when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom, there will be no more need for missions. There will be no more need for discipleship. We will be worshiping around the throne. That is the goal. The worship of the nations is the, is the goal. One of the greatest barriers that existed in Jesus' day, and I believe exists in our day, to accomplishing this mission is ethnocentrism. It is racism. Any form of extreme nationalism, any form. 
Now, now for some, as I, I, I kind of push the pause button there a little bit, for some of us, just even, even me talking about it right now because of what's happening in our world, instantly, the very fact that I'm bringing up the topic, there's a temptation to place me in a political area, or sorry, in a place on a political continuum, okay? And as a result, maybe not listen to me or want to applaud me, all right? Regardless of what I'm about to say. Like, just the fact that I'm saying it right now, okay? As a church, um, you know, we said something shortly after Charlottesville. We did, and I think we said the right thing. There's nothing I would add to it, and there's nothing I would subtract to it. And we said what we said, and we didn't say what we didn't say for a reason. I'm not going to get into that. If you would like to have that conversation, I would love to have that conversation. But not right here. Not right now. The thing I want to say is because racism, because ethnocentrism can be such a barrier, an obstacle to God's global mandate for the church, I think it's important for us to think, many of us do, talk about race. We have to do it. We have to do it. And what I'm going to say now is not everything that I can say. It is not everything that I should say. It's just what I'm going to say right now, okay? And there will be times when I'm going to say other things that aren't going to be in conflict with it, but it's a big, big issue, okay? And there's just two things that if you walk away from here today, and I I really hope, I try to do this, I really hope that we can just check our political alliances and allegiances at the door when we come in here and worship Jesus. We should be able to do that. I, the last thing I want to do is use the pulpit as a place where you will promote a political agenda. I don't think you should do that. Okay, now there are some churches that do that on a regular basis. The, God, the, the pulpit should be the place where you promote a biblical agenda. Okay, now they do have political you know, implications. Absolutely. But I'm not concerned with shaping a Republican worldview or a libertarian worldview or a democratic worldview. I'm concerned with you, and that's really what my job should be, is to help you form a biblical worldview, okay? So two things I want to say about race. Two things. I could say a lot more. The first thing, in the words of Cornell West and the book that he wrote in the 90s, the first thing I want us to be understand, you know, on the same page with is that race matters. Race matters, Okay. It it matters so much that when Jesus called his church to a discipleship plan, he said, I want them all. That's what he said. It matters. It matters to Jesus. It absolutely does. And it matters in our world. Whether we like it or not, it matters. We cannot deny it. We can't deny it. Now, I I know some people don't like talking about it and think, well, we shouldn't talk about it. I would suggest if we don't talk about it, it's as as if you have your head buried in the sand and you're paying no attention to the world around you if you don't talk about it. That's either what you're doing is burying your head in the sand or you're doing something else, which I think is even worse, is you're saying this book has nothing to say about your life and the world you live in, which is what most people believe. So if you don't address one of the greatest topics right now from a biblical standpoint, you are just promoting what everybody else is believing. This book has nothing to do with you. Nothing could be further from the truth. And as a result, we have to talk about it. Race matters. It matters. To deny its existence or your awareness of it is offensive and it's false and it's insensitive, right? One of the first reasons why it matters, he calls us to every race, every tribe, every tongue, every ethne. One of the reasons why it matters is because God made every one of us in his image. Race 
is beautiful. It's beautiful. We are all different tones. We come from different parts of the world. And it is, we are all made in his image. Every one of us are made in his image. Every one of us are beautifully and wonderfully made. That's what the Bible tells us. Now, now the problem is, is that's the reality. What happened, just like in the sphere of race, in every other social construct, in every other part of our world, way back in the garden, sin made its way in. And when sin made its way in, it corrupted the world that we live in. So now race, rather than it just being a beautiful thing, it can become a very painful thing. It can become a thing that is the source of great strife, great conflict, and great pain. The way we divide ourselves by race. The way we place a hierarchy that's based solely on race. It has been corrupted. It has been tainted by sin. Race in of itself is not a bad thing. What we have done with it is terrible. It's terrible. Now, that being said, race matters. There is a history in our country that we can't ignore. We, we simply can't ignore it. To do so would be offensive. Now, when I think about what we talked about on maybe a couple of weeks ago, what we said, um, the reason why we said it isn't because, I just want to make this real clear, is not because we wanted to stand and say, this is our position as a church on this official position. No. The reason why we said it is because there's people walking through these doors on a Sunday who say, like, that hurt. Watching that happen this weekend hurt. Am I accepted here? Is this a place where people can love me? What do I have to think about when I walk through these doors? And we need, needed to make it absolutely unapologetically clear that, listen, it, racism is not from God. It is an assault and is an offense to the gospel. Okay? It was an opportunity. Now, do we have to take every Sunday to devote some time to every little violent thing that happens? No. And I guarantee you, you don't want me to do that. We would never get to this word, okay? So we're not going to do that. But in that moment, it seemed like for our people, that was the right thing to do. And I, I won't apologize for that. I think it was right, okay? Now, you're probably thinking, well, why is he talking about this? Well, because some people didn't think it was right, okay? So I just want to make sure everybody understands. Everybody understands where we're coming from. The second thing I think is really important for us to understand as a people, yes, race matters. It matters. But it is not all that matters. It is not all that matters. Thank God that when he looks at us, he looks at what's on the inside of us. Our problem is we primarily look on what's on the outside. Okay? God looks at the heart. Our identity as a people is bound up in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is at the core of who we are. Paul talks about it time and time again. When you step into the kingdom, when his spirit indwells you, when you receive the gift of salvation, you put off the old self and you put on the new self. And as a result, there's no longer slave, there's no longer free, there's no longer bar barbarian, there's no longer Scythian, no longer Jews, there's no longer Gentiles. We are one in Christ. Our primary identity as a people is Jesus. That's who we are. If we rally together around anything, it should be about him and the work he's done in each and every one of us. I do not care 
where you come from, what language you speak, what your history, your track record, what your education is like. You and me both are in desperate need of Jesus. Race matters. It is not all that matters. And as a people, this, our culture, what's happening in our world, you know, just so everybody's clear, it's not that racism was never an issue and all of a sudden it's like an issue. It's just that for many of us, we were never forced to think about it or address it. Now we are, okay? Because, you know, I just stopped turning on the news, to be honest with you, because it, I can't watch it anymore, okay? It makes me sick. I don't care which channel you watch. It's just, ah, okay? But for some of us, maybe we had the privilege of not thinking about it. Now we have to think about it and talk about it. There's others in this room today who have never had that privilege, have always had to think about it. It's always the first thing on their mind, right? And so for us, it's an opportunity to come together and say, listen, let's, where there's wounds, let the gospel heal them. Where there's pain, let Jesus heal the pain. Love one another. Okay, that's what we're called to do, all right? He has set us on a global mission a global mission. We have an opportunity to put the power of Jesus Christ on display in a world that is as divided, as broken, as hurt as it's ever been. It's an awesome opportunity. Of course we're going to talk about it. Of course. Okay? So, that being said, the next thing that we learn is unpause, play. The next thing that we learn as we go through this passage is weakness. We learn about weakness of the disciples. Um... The amazing thing to me about these two verses is that when, when we read that they fell on their face and they worshipped him, you would expect there to be a period at the end of that sentence. There's not. There's a comma followed by three words. Those three words are powerful words. Some but, some doubted. They fell on their face, they worshipped Jesus, but some doubted. Now this is not what you would expect to find in this book. You would not expect it. Here in the culmination of the book of Matthew, he tells us that some of these disciples, some of these followers of Jesus, some of the men who knew Jesus the best on the face of the earth, were there worshiping, and in the midst of their worship was doubt and was unbelief. Now, why would he do that? Why would he include that? That just opens the door for confusion, for skepticism, to run rampant. Why would Matthew include those three words? But some doubted. Well, the reason, there's a couple of reasons. One of them is because first and foremost, it's true. It actually happened. They worshiped him and some of them were doubting. That's incredibly helpful. Listen, if Matthew wanted to fabricate a story to make up a story, he would not include those three words. He would simply leave them out, even if they were true. But the fact that they're there point to us that what he is saying actually happened. Actually happened. It, this helps us in understanding the historical accuracy of this account. It's sentences, words like those, but some doubted. The fact that the women were the first ones to discover the tomb empty. Things like that that are included in there help show its historical accuracy. I think that's one reason why it's there. Another reason, the, the main reason why I think it's there and it's really helpful is to show a weakness within the disciples. These men... They were with the risen Savior standing in front of them, and they're still struggling in their quest to believe. 
The word used here, doubt, it's the same word in Matthew chapter 14 when Jesus is, is walking out on the sea to the, his disciples who are in a boat. And he calls out and Peter comes and starts walking to them. And as Peter looks at the waves, takes his eyes off of Jesus and looks at the, at the wind and the waves and the rain and begins, begins to question what he's doing, he begins to sink. And, and Jesus says to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? This is exactly this, what some of the disciples are feeling at this moment. Some of them are doubting what is happening. Some of them have hesitation. They're, they're dealing with unbelief, little faith. So the final picture of, of his church, of these 11 disciples that Matthew leaves us with, his readers with, is a mixed group of people. Together, what are they doing? They're drawing near to Jesus. What are they doing as they draw near to Jesus? They're worshiping. But what's in their midst? Unbelief. Unbelief. Now, to me, this is incredibly comforting. I don't know about you, but for me it is. It reveals that these men have not fully arrived at their quest to believe and to follow Jesus. They're still struggling in their life. Now, I can think of moments in my life when I was a, a follower of Jesus, when I received the gift of salvation, where I too, you know, maybe intellectually, academically questioned some of the things I was believing. I shared this story last week, but I can remember one specific time at Parkview. I was my final year of college, and I was sitting in the back row at Parkview, and Jeff was, was, uh, was up at, uh, teaching, and it was during an Easter service or a weekend kind of deal, and we were talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection. And I can remember sitting there listening as he was talking. I I was trying to connect dots. I was thinking to myself, did this actually happen? This part of the story does not make sense. I just don't know about that, things that he was saying. And I remember questioning it. Now, mind you, I was in college ministry at the time. I was in 24-7. I was a leader in the college ministry, and I was wrestling with some of the doubt. Now, thank God there was a friend of mine who I went to church with, who as soon as we stepped out, I began to ask questions, and we spent some time sifting through some of the questions and really got to some answers. But that was only able to happen because I took those questions, that doubt, and I, and I, helped, I, I helped use them to help me draw closer to Jesus. Now, what I would suggest to you this morning is that probably everybody in this room, if you examine your life, probably every single one of us in some place or another in our life, probably even right now, is struggling in the area of belief. In fact, there's a guy named Jeff Vanderstelt. He's a missiologist. He wrote a book called Gospel Fluency. He says the reality is that every sinful attitude, motive, act is the result of unbelief. Not fully believing in God's word or in God's work. If you look at your life and examine your heart, examine your life and you see sin present in a particular area, an area that you struggle with. It could be pride. It could be um, being satisfied or fulfilled. It could be uh, a pride of or a sin of materialism or maybe the way you operate within relationships or the way you want to control and manipulate certain things in your life. Whatever that area of sin is that is, is a particular struggle for you, what he's saying is that is the result of unbelief. It's the result of not believing that God is great, that he's all-powerful, he's in complete control, and so I don't have to be always in control. Or that God is, is glorious, that he is, he is a glorious God who is on our side, and as a result, I don't have to fear 
those around me. I don't have to fear the relationships that I'm in or that God is good. And because God is fully and truly good, I can, I can find my satisfaction in him. Not in the gifts that he gives me, but in him, in his very nature, in his self. I don't have to try and fill that God-sized hole in my life with money, with relationships, with men, with women, with a career, with academics, with any of that stuff, because he's good enough. Sin present in our life is the result of unbelief. It's interesting that in John chapter 14, when he is sitting around the table, as he is having this discourse towards the end of his, of his ministry on earth, as he sits there and talks with these men, the challenge that he gives them is in John chapter 14, he says, believe in God, believe also in me. Like, just to be clear, the work has been done. Our responsibility is to believe it, to believe who he says he is and what he has done for us. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do, is to believe. And our hope, our prayer, is that we would grow in our belief. As a people, that's what we should do. And when we see sin present in our life, what we can do that would be really helpful is to say, okay, what is it that you are not believing about God to be true right now? Help each other by, by understanding that you see pre sin present. You are not fully trusting this promise that God has given you. You are not fully trusting this word that he says. Help us see unbelief in one another's lives. It's one of the greatest things you could do. Now it's awesome. To me, I think he includes these three words, but some doubted to show us that for this mission to work, for this mission to work, it's not going to be because of me. It, it will not be because of you. It's only possible because what we see in the next three verses is that he has all authority on earth. He has claims this superior claim. And at the end of the passage, he gives us this awesome comfort that he will be with us always. Not, or sorry, he is with us always. Not he will be. You don't earn it. He says, I am. It's not a future promise. It's a present claim. He is with us. He gives us this comfort. He's going to accomplish it through us. Now, when I step back and I think about Parkview East and I think of some of the things that we should be doing, again, the question is, are you doing what Jesus is telling you to do? Are you actively engaged in making disciples? So I'll just probably stop with those two verses and not do the rest of the message, okay? But the question I want to ask you is, are you making disciples? Are you making disciples? Of all the activities we could be involved in, I started asking myself this at the beginning of the year. Okay, where do I put discipleship in my schedule? Now, that's what I said last week when I preached this last week. Uh, it was a different sermon a little bit than it was this week. But when I preached it last week, that was the challenge. Is look at your schedule and where do you put discipleship? Is it in there? Like the way you budget time with your family or, or money or, or the way you time with Jesus or um, you know, all the different things that you had could fill up your schedule? Are you making time? Are you intentional about putting it in there? That's the wrong question to ask. As I was thinking about that, thinking about it myself and praying, like show me where this is at, that's the wrong question to ask. See, the Great Commission is bound up not just with what we do, but with who we are. And so the truth is, everything else should find its way into making discipleship, not the other way around. We should, at the very beginning, that's what we are primarily called to do. And so it doesn't make sense to treat it like soccer practice, or to treat it like your work schedule, or to treat it like 
croquet, whatever it is you like. It doesn't make sense to treat it like that. It is the primary task of the church. It should be where we start. And everything else should go in around making disciples. That's the challenge. So I think about here, there's lots of opportunities. You know, you got Friends of International students starting up. If you want information, Jay could raise her hand and you could just go there. I want to especially make an international connection. Go to Jay. Jay. She'll hook you up with an international friend, right? Thank you. If you want to spend time making disciples here in this building, we have opportunities for us to do that. If you'd like to maybe get connected with high school students, back there is Wisdom and Wisdom could raise his hand. There you go. And you could talk to him. Like an older student, you want to build a relationship, we think you go there. There is no shortage. I mean, parents, dads, moms, it starts in the home. Like that's primarily where you want to start with and then go from there. Okay? So if you need help making that connection, the awesome thing is it can be scary, it can be fearful, but the awesome thing is at the end of these verses he says, I will be with you. I am with you to the end of the age. He gives us what we need. We have his presence with us. It's an awesome awesome thing. Let me pray. Father God, thank you um, just for the opportunity, Father, to meet this morning as a people, as your people. Um, Lord, I thank you that just even in this room, we can see, um, we, we are evidence that faithful saints in the past have taken your word seriously. Everybody that's in this room who claims you as our Lord and Savior is here because people are buying into the work that you've called us to do. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to further that, to continue the work, and that you would show us areas in our life, Lord, where, where maybe we need to hone in and focus on, Father. Um, Lord, and I pray that ultimately, Father, that I just even think of this church in a year from now, and Lord, I pray that if there is growth that happens here, it would not be because there's people who come and like what's happening here and not their church, Lord, but it would be because there are lost people who are being found. That's our prayer, that you would do it through your saints. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.